Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anish Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join in, you can email your questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about myeloid malignancies with Dr. Amr Zaden. Dr. Zaden is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Hematology at Yale School of Medicine. And here's Dr. Anish Chagpar. So, Amr, maybe start off a little bit by telling us about myeloid malignancies. What are they? Um, And a little bit about what myeloid dysplastic syndrome is, because I understand that that's your area of expertise. Yeah, that's correct. So basically, myeloid malignancies belong to a larger group of malignancies called hematologic malignancies. In general, we think of malignancies either as solid tumors, which are like the lung cancer, breast cancer that most people are familiar with. And then there is the hematologic malignancies or what we uh, call it sometimes liquid malignancies because they occur in the blood or the lymphatic organs. And those generally are divided into three big categories. Um, the lymphoid uh, tissue uh, malignancies or tumors such as uh, lymphomas and you have the plasma cell disorders which originate from the plasma cells and probably the most common form of that is multiple myeloma which I'm sure many of your audience have heard of that and then we have the group of um, myeloid malignancies which basically occur in a type of uh, blood progenitor which is an early cell in the bone marrow uh, that is called uh, myeloid um, myeloid cells and these cells basically uh, are divided into three big categories uh, basically their main function is to defend the body against uh, infections uh, such as the neutrophils and cells that are carrying the blood uh, sorry carrying the oxygen throughout the blood such as the red blood cells and then the platelets which are uh, the small particles in the body that basically work to prevent against bleeding so those tumors arise in the progenitors or the early bone marrow cells that uh, their differentiation lead to the formation of those mature cells. When we have a hematologic malignancy or specifically a myeloid malignancy, one of the consequences of that is that the maturation of the cells become abnormal or even stops completely and uh, the patient will end up with uh, what we call early or premature cells that are dysfunctional, uh, which contribute to many of the symptoms that the patients would have. For example, uh, because of deficiency in the neutrophils, the patients would have increased risk of infections, deficiency of the red blood cells due to the arrest or failure of full maturation can lead to anemia and its symptoms and uh, the low platelet count problems with uh, uh, basically megakaryocytes, which are the cells that uh, basically uh, lead to the platelet formation uh, can cause bleeding issues. And so, you know, it sounds like this is probably pretty rare. Is that true? 
Um, so I would say basically hematologic malignancies are, are as a group are not that rare. They are actually, uh, when you compare them to the solid tumors, for sure they are uh, less uh, less often encountered in the solid tumors. But in the other term, uh, they are actually quite uh, seen quite often. Um, I would tell you, for example, that uh, each single entity um, if I talk, for example, about acute myeloid leukemia, the incidence is around four in 100,000 uh, uh, people in the U.S. So that's around 20,000 new cases each year. Myelodysplastic syndromes are a little bit more than acute myeloid leukemia. So they are around 20 to 30,000 a year. So when you add throughout the different tumors, and the most common ones are the chronic lymphocytic leukemias and um, multiple myelomas. And when you add all these tumors together as a group, they constitute a big chunk of basically a major group of malignancies in general. So when we think about the myeloid malignancies, um, so you talked a little bit about deficiencies in production of white blood cells causing infections and red blood cells causing um, anemia and platelets causing bleeding. So are those the symptoms that people would have when they present with these myeloid malignancies? Yes, so in general, we divide the symptoms, uh, or the way I think about the symptoms, I think about them in two big categories. Uh, one category is what you mentioned, the symptoms that are related to the underproduction or uh, uh, lack of the functional capacity of the cells, including the red blood cells, causing symptoms of anemia like fatigue and difficulty of breathing when walking, uh, uh, headaches, dizziness, symptoms related to bleeding, uh, easy bruising, bleeding from your gums when you brush your teeth, and symptoms related to the inf recurrent infections or fevers uh, related to the low neutrophil count. Uh, aside from these symptoms, we have another big group of symptoms that are related to the uh, what we call hyperproliferation from, of the cancer cells. So you have a, what we call a maturation arrest in which the cells are not maturing into the into the fully mature forms of the red blood cells, but you have accumulation of those immature precursors, which, what we commonly refer to as malignant cells or PLAS in the case of acute leukemia and acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is another form of leukemia. And that hyper, basically when you have hyperproliferation of those cells, they can lead to significant symptoms in their own. For example, uh, because these cells consume um, some of the body proteins and excrete proteins in the blood, they can cause uh, bleeding problems, something called disseminated intravascular coagulation, which worsens uh, bleeding problems from the low platelet count. They can also uh, cause increase in the secretion of uh, uric acid, which results from the metabolism of the nuclear acids in the cells, and that can cause basically, can even cause renal shutdown. Um, depending on, uh, although we think of those tumors as what I mentioned as liquid tumors, they can even form masses sometimes, like an actual tumors. They can, depending on when they form, they can cause local symptoms. So, for example, if you have a collection of those cells resulting in a lump around the spinal cord, some people can have neurologic symptoms. If they occur in the brain area, people can have neurologic symptoms such as uh, headaches or double vision or um, if they occur in the lung or if they occur around the heart or depending on where the accumulation of those cells occur they can call they can cause uh, local um, 
symptoms. So in general, the, the presentation is variable. The, rarely we have patients who present just because of they had a routine uh, exam and um, their primary care physician got blood counts and noticed low white cell count uh, or low platelets or low uh, hemoglobin, and then they get worked up despite not having any symptoms. We do see that more often now that the blood work is being done more often, uh, I think, than compared to the past. Um, one of the common presentations of leukemia, for whatever reason, tends to be having uh, an illness like a sore throat or just a flu-like illness in which patients would get uh, a week or two of uh, sore throat and usually they would get a course of antibiotics and the symptoms don't improve and eventually they get a blood work and that shows a high white cell count. That doesn't mean people that you know should freak out each time they have a sore throat or a flu-like illness, but these symptoms, if they do not improve, if you have a flu or a sore throat or something like that, and it doesn't improve within a couple of you know a week or two, of, or if the symptoms are very severe, it's important to be evaluated because there might be other underlying uh, problems that's causing the uh, uncharacteristically prolonged illness. So, so should people be getting routine blood work every year with their physical exam, like a, a blood count to see how many red blood cells and white blood cells and platelets they have, or should they really only be getting that if they have symptoms? So typically we recommend that in the context of having symptoms most of the time for, I'm talking specifically about the CBC or the complete blood counts. You know, the other the other. Uh, blood work like, for example, lipids or cholesterol or those things are, you know, dictated by the guidelines and the primary care physicians usually obtain that on a regular basis. But my experience is that most primary care physicians do get uh, blood counts at least once a year, although typically unless there are specific symptoms, we, there is no absolute necessity to do them. So so just to, to kind of clarify, so... Um, so either patients present to their primary care doctor with symptoms, and the symptoms sound like they can be pretty nonspecific, right? I'm a little bit tired. I've had a flu that didn't get better. You know, I bruised easily. Like, I mean, those are things that I'm sure our audience is sitting there going, you know, I I've, I've, can think of a few instances where I've had that. How do people know when to get concerned and when this is just, you know, part of daily living? I think in general, when we talk about especially acute leukemias, it's usually a major change from baseline. So I think if you start, for example, having bruising and, you know, there are people who are easy, they have easy bruising all of their life. But if somebody who does not typically have easy bruising and they start noticing bruises that are new, if they start having bleeding when they brush their gums that or their teeth from their bleeding from the gums that has not been there before. If they, if the symptoms of the flu or the illness are uncharacteristically severe uh, or uh, get uh, to be prolonged despite antibiotic therapy, those type of situation, I think it's definitely always worth calling the primary care physician and getting some uh, blood work uh, done. And again, I have to emphasize here that uh, the minority of those situations end up being acute uh, leukemias, but because, you know, as a specialist who see a lot of those patients, I I, I tend to see such presentations uh, 
not uncommonly and you know unfortunately it's a it's a difficult kind of situation i would compare it for example uh, you know as a, as a breast cancer uh, doctor yourself i think um, when patients uh, have breast cancer for example they have a they feel alarm usually they feel it for some time and they are worried about it and they get examined and the doctor is worried about it and they get a biopsy and usually it takes several months or several weeks at least and the patient has a sense that something wrong is is going on and they are somewhat mentally um i don't want to say prepared but they have some anticipation of what might be happening while and they have some time to you know think about the therapeutic options and what to do next one of the challenges we have with acute leukemias in general is that you know those situations usually come the patient is sick as i mentioned with a flu or what seems to be a flu or a sore throat for a couple of weeks and they present to the their doctor or to the er and suddenly their white cell count is very high and uh so the diagnosis is usually quite sudden and sometimes we have to initiate treatment uh, we have to initiate treatment quite uh, quickly even within 24 hours as a leukemia doctors we are actually on call uh, we do often not i wouldn't say often but we do come at night uh, when those patients come because it's a medical emergency there are some subtypes of leukemia that can uh, lead to significant complications and even death if they are not handled very quickly and um, the diagnostic workup is started and all of that. So you can imagine as a patient, uh, it's quite uh, difficult to deal with all of this in terms of how life your how your life is completely changed upside down within within 40, 24, 48 hours. And it's, uh, it can be quite difficult to uh, deal with the situation. Um, so but i think the counter argument of that is that i always tell my patients that acute leukemias in general at least compared to metastatic solid tumors um, they have a high chance of or there's a chance of cure at least so while it can be aggressive it can be uh, associated with a lot of complications uh, we usually have a chance at cure and we always work with the patient for that goal uh, well, we're going to learn a lot more about how we treat uh, uh, aggressive uh, myeloid malignancies right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about myeloid malignancies and early phase clinical trials with Dr. Amr Zaden. Smoking can be a very strong habit that involves the potent drug nicotine, and there are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking. But smoking cessation is a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment. Quitting smoking has been shown to positively impact response to treatments and to decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies. Smoking cessation programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center, and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. The smoking cessation service at Smilo operates on the principles of the U.S. Public Health Service Clinical Practice Guidelines. All treatment components are evidence-based and therefore all patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications and smoking cessation counseling. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. For more information, go to YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.
Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Amr Zaden. We're talking about myeloid malignancies, and right before the break, Amr, you were discussing a case, hypothetical of course, about patients who present with a flu, they've got a high white count, and sometimes these are medical emergencies. So I want to pick up our conversation there with a question first. It may strike people as being kind of... Um, elusive as to why the white count would be so high. I mean, if you have a cancer that's kind of cutting off the progenitors of white blood cells, how come your white blood cell count is high? Why wouldn't your white cell count be low? I thought that's why people were getting infections. Yeah, that's a good question. And what happens with leukemia is is similar to other cancers. What we get is uh, you get an uncontrolled proliferation. So although there is a uh, what we call a cut in the differentiation, the early precursors, the cells that are earlier in their development than the stage at which there is a cutoff, they have this uncontro- uncontrolled proliferation. So their number increases and the normal uh, check mechanisms that the body has to control those, usually the body has always check mechanisms to control uh, the numbers of different cells, those become abnormal in cancer. They have what we call anti-apoptotic signals in which the cells don't die, or they have uh, pro-survival signals that basically make these uh, cells um, survive more and proliferate more. And um, not all leukemias actually have a white cell count. Those are some of the more, uh, I would say, dramatic examples. We do see that sometimes. But for whatever reason, some of the leukemias tend, um, so many of the myeloid leukemias basically, or almost all of them generate basically on the bone marrow. For whatever reason, sometimes the cells tend to spill in the blood and those patients can have white cell, high white cell count. And there are situations in which actually the cells, because of certain proteins on the surface of the leukemia cells that we call adhesion proteins, they can actually stay stuck inside the bone marrow. And while they are not leaking into the blood and not causing a high white cell count, there can be a lot of them inside the bone marrow and they can cause the symptoms we discussed earlier, um, the, what we refer to as the bone marrow failure symptoms, such as the anemia, neutropenia, and um, thrombocytopenia, which are basically low hemoglobin, low platelets, and low neutrophils, because all these leukemia cells are expanding in the bone marrow, which is the factory that makes the normal blood cells at the expense of the normal cells. So these get crowded out and patients can have those low symptoms. So uh, while patients generally who have a high white cell count is a situation in which you need to make faster interventions and sometimes uh, you need to start therapy sooner, there are types of leukemia that we used to refer to them as aleukemic leukemias, meaning that although the white cell count is not high in the blood, it's still a leukemia. And this is why uh, doing a bone marrow biopsy, which is a procedure in which we obtain a sample from the, uh, usually from the iliac bones and in the back of the pelvis uh, to try to examine the cells under the microscope is is, uh, is usually needed in most cases of uh, when we suspect uh, an acute acute malignant, or sorry, an acute leukemia in general. So, so, but neutropenia is low white blood cells. So sometimes you can get low white blood cells and sometimes you can get high white blood cells. Is that right? Yeah. So then the high white cell count is usually what we call blasts or the early progenitors. But the 
neutrophils, which are the basically thermally differentiated. So the mature cells. The mature cells, yeah, they get cut off and you don't make a lot of them. And we actually always say even patients who do have uh, neutrophils when when they have leukemia, we usually call them functionally uh, neutropenic, meaning that although they have some, you know, a, a good number of neutrophils, these neutrophils do not function as they are supposed to function because of the leukemia. So they can be still what we call immunocompromised at risk of infections despite having a good number of neutrophils. So when you get that complete blood count, like when you go to your doctor and they look at your white blood cell count and they look at your red blood cell count and they look at your platelets, in that white blood cell count, can they differentiate just on that simple test whether these are blast cells or whether these are neutrophils? Because sometimes your white blood cell count will go up because you've got an infection and because your body is making these mature cells that are fighting infection. So how do you know whether or not that is from the blasts or whether that is from the mature neutrophils? So usually most laboratories will have an automated uh, what we call differential count in which uh, using certain techniques such as what we call flow cytometry, the machine would be able to tell whether what you have are neutrophils, which are what typically would happen if you have an infection and your white cell count would go up. Usually you get neutrophils or some early versions of that, um, but you don't typically get plas. Having plas in the blood is abnormal. Usually that would picked up get picked up by those automated differential counts. Sometimes it might be picked up as a different cell. Sometimes we see what we call, the machine would call it monocytes, but they are actually plas. So in those situations, looking at the, this is one of the things that any hematologist is trained to do is making a smear, which basically taking a drop of blood and spreading it on a microscope slide and looking under the microscope. The technicians would usually do that, but when there is a suspicion of having plas, usually, a hematologist would get contacted to actually look at that. And depending on the white cell count and, again, the clinical situation, the patient, um, sometimes we can see the patient, uh, you know, in a few days or the week after if the white cell count is not very high. But there are situations in which the patient will need, you know, to be transferred to the emergency room or start evaluation immediately. That's in contrast, for example, uh, when, when you compare that with the other form of myeloid malignancies that I deal with often, the myelodysplastic syndromes, which is um, typically manifest by low uh, low blood counts, what we call cytopenias. And uh, that is also a common problem. It doesn't get the, at, or it used to not get the same attention uh, like acute myeloid malignancies largely because it occurred in um, mostly older people, the median age in the early 70s. Mm. And uh, in the past, until 2004, we did not actually have any type of therapies for myelodysplastic syndrome. So historically, acute myeloid leukemia got in more attention from hematologists and oncologists than uh, myelodysplastic syndromes, which uh, between the two diseases are the focus of uh, my research. So, so Amr, talk a little bit about the distinction between the two, because I don't think that our listeners really understand that distinction. So on the one hand, you did mention that in some cases of acute uh, leukemias, it's a medical emergency, like you have got to treat now, which is kind of scary. With myelodysplastic syndromes, it's not so much. But can you draw other distinctions? How do people know what's a myeloid dysplastic syndrome versus a leukemia? How are they managed differently? What is the prognosis for each? Can you tell us a little bit about the distinction between the two? Sure. So 
the major form of leukemia that we are talking about here is acute myeloid leukemia because there are other type of leukemias that can affect, for example, the lymphoid cells called acute lymphoblastic leukemias. But when we talk about acute myeloid leukemia versus myelodysplastic syndromes, both of them, the way I try to tell the patient to think about it is that myelodysplastic syndromes can be more of a, what we call a a chronic type of leukemia, in which, depending on the severity, some of the symptoms can be progressive and severe, but some of them can be um, mild and can take some time to develop. So in myelodysplastic syndromes, the main feature is what we call an effective hematopoiesis, meaning that the bone marrow is trying to produce these uh, cells, but they are dying before they reach to the functional stage. You don't typically have an increased or the same degree of increase in the blast or the um, basically those cells that increase the white cell count uh, in patients with leukemia. And the distinction sometimes can be quite uh, blurred between myelodysplastic syndromes and some versions of acute myeloid leukemia. So the traditional cutoff according to the World Health Organization classification in the bone marrow is 20% of those blasts. So once you cross 20% of blasts, typically you go into the area of acute myeloid leukemia as well. If you have less than 20%, generally that goes along the lines of myelodysplastic um, syndromes, although, you know, that cutoff for management purposes uh, is not something that, you know, is an absolute for us. Sometimes we, um, for example, uh, the treatment uh, of, uh, in general, those malignancies go into uh, two different or two large categories. One of them is intensive chemotherapy in which the patient will need to be hospitalized for a significant amount of time, get intensive chemotherapy and wait until their blood counts go down and then recover. And that type of treatment is something we typically do for acute myeloid leukemia. There's another form of treatment called hypomethylating agents, such as azacitidine or decitabine. And we generally refer to that as um, lower intensity therapies because they can be given outpatient. They are typically either an injection under the skin or uh, an uh, infusion over an hour, and they are given for five to seven days, uh, basically each uh, 28 days. So those treatments, um, depending on the age of the patient and their um, other illnesses, uh, as I mentioned, most of those patients are older and doing intensive chemo can be quite difficult. So uh, sometimes for myelodysplastic syndromes and some forms of uh, leukemia, we do those lower intensity treatments regardless of the number of the plasts in the in the bone marrow. So it's it's um it's usually a matter of discussion in terms of what are the goals of the treatment and uh, taking into consideration not only the factors of the tumor, such as the percentage of those blasts and the cytogenetic changes, which are the changes in the chromosome, the genetic uh, factors that drive the leukemia. Um, but we also take into consideration the patient's own wishes. What are their goals? Are they usually younger patients? The goal is try to go for a cure, even if the treatment has initial toxicity. While if the patient is 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 much older and the disease is quite difficult to cure, the goal might be to try to palliate the symptoms and improve their quality of life and uh, try to prolong their survival. But sometimes cure can be quite difficult in those situations. So, Amr, it really sounds like the boundaries are fuzzy between acute myeloid leukemias 
and myeloid dysplastic syndromes. Is that fair? I would say for some some for some cases it's quite difficult to de- make the distinction. There are cases that are more straightforward when you have, as I mentioned, a lot of plasts with a high white cell count that tends to be clear cut, or when you have a myelodysplastic syndrome in which um, uh, the number of the plasts is relatively low, like five to ten percent or less than that. But when the plast count is close to twenty, it becomes a matter of uh, you know just um, what do you call it. But ultimately, the treatment might not change. So there are patients who have let's say fifteen percent plasts, which are technically categorized as myelodysplastic syndromes, but if they are younger, sometimes those patients would give them intensive chemo, the type of chemo that you would give for an acute myeloid leukemia. And there are patients who cross the 20, let's say 30% of plus, but they are older and they have other medical problems. And in those situations, those patients, uh, we might consider those lower intensity treatments, not the intensive chemo, because the chance of complications and even dying from the treatment can be quite high. So, so, you know, just in terms of the nomenclature, it sounds like when somebody hears leukemia, like we think, oh my God, cancer, going to die. When we hear myelodysplastic syndrome, it sounds so much nicer. It sounds like it is not a malignancy. So is it a cancer really? Yeah, it's definitely a cancer. That's actually a great question. And each time I give a talk about MDS, I always emphasize this point that even not only the you know the patients who get educated by that, but but some of the oncologists um, in the community think of it because it's called a syndrome or a pre-leukemia or anemia. Uh, I think uh, myelodysplastic syndromes get underestimated in terms of how aggressive they can be. One of the figures that we actually I usually put in my presentations is uh, basically a presentation of the survival curves for patients with myelodysplastic syndrome, according to the classification, we have a classification called uh, International Prognostic Scoring System. It goes from a low, intermediate one, intermediate two, and high. And those at the high level, they are almost as bad as having stage four lung cancer. Yeah, so the median survival for those patients without treatment is less than 0.4 years, less than four months. So myelodysplastic syndrome can be quite difficult, can be quite aggressive and uh, in t- uh, very aggressive treatment, including allogenic bone marrow transplantation can be required in, in, in those cases and should not be underestimated. And because it's a rare disease, uh, referral to experts in that is actually usually a, a very good idea. Dr. Amr Zaden is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Hematology at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.